don't know about you, but I am glad that I am not famous. Some of you would like to be famous. I'll pray for you. Uh, if you've ever really thought about it, being famous radically changes your life in some very unpleasant ways. You gotta be careful in public because everybody wants to get a selfie with you, right? Everybody wants to get a selfie with you. If you go out to dinner with your significant other, with your family, right? People are coming up to your table and asking if they can get your autograph, if they can get a picture, if they can tell you something. Uh, and everyone who approaches you is working an angle. Everyone who approaches you is working an angle. Trust me, it's the way it works if you're a celebrity, if you're famous. Um, and, and so it's all about what you can do for them if you're a famous person, okay? They don't see you as a person. They just see you as a means to an end. In Kentucky, we have a couple of people who make the rounds right here in central Kentucky. You may not know this, but Bill Shatner has a home in Versailles and, uh, right, uh, had a home in Versailles and... <laughs> and spend some time in Kentucky several times a year. And so there are people that are on the Captain Kirk, Bill Shatner patrol and will, I just saw Captain Kirk at the Fayette Mall. I just saw Captain Kirk come out of Red Robin. Like I just saw it, like beam me up Scotty. And, and will approach him and all of his whereabouts are documented thoroughly on social media. And uh, they follow him like, you know, it's Captain Kirk, okay? And like he hasn't ever heard beam me up Scotty. And the other person in our neck of the woods is Coach Cal. Coach Cal, you know, is out and about. And trust me, Bill Shatner and Coach Cal are interrupted every five steps. People wanna have a picture made. And, and here's the thing. There are some people that actually think they're being polite. They see Coach Cal in a restaurant and they say to their spouse, I'm gonna let him finish his meal. And then when he leaves, that's when I'll ask, right, for the picture. And they think that that's just being so polite as if Coach Cal walked into the restaurant and thought to himself, you know what would make this day, this evening really great is when I get up to go to the bathroom or leave, if 20 people would ask to have their picture made with me. That would take this event, this experience that's a three right now, and it would make it a 10. Like I would remember the rest of my life as being the best night ever, right? No, no, Coach Cal does not think that. Um, the same thing, by the way, is true if you're rich. Here's my stereotypical rich guy. Uh, <laughs> everyone who approaches you is working an angle. Everyone who approaches you is working an angle. They want you to do something for them, for their business, for their charity, for their good cause. Um, if you don't believe me, ask April or Jay Corman, heirs to the RJ Corman money in our community. Just ask them, how many people come to you in a year? How many people come to you in a given week with their handout? <coughs> Wanting you to do something for them, for their good cause, for their thing. And if you don't believe me, I know some of you buy lottery tickets. If you won the lottery, if you won the lottery, all your relatives would be coming out of the woodwork. You would hear from cousin, you know, Sandy, hey, <laughs> did you know that Bob got laid off? And, you know, there'd be a thing and, you know, haven't seen you since the wedding 15 years ago. But like that would play out because all of a sudden you could do something for them. I tell you this because God has made people in his image and every single person is valuable inherently valuable because God made them. Even if they're rich, oh, even if they're famous, oh, even if they could do something to help you, God made them. And so you know people, don't you, who are just out to use others? 
Come on, there's some people at school, there's some people at seminary, there's some people in Kiwanis Club with you that are always working an angle, trying to get the next insurance sale, like the whole nine yards. They're just, you know, networking to get what they can get. And, and so I, all this manipulating, all this using, it really dehumanizes the other person. And it, and it turns them into an object, a means to an end. And so one of the things I want you to get about becoming mature is that it means that we love others well, okay? We love others well. To be truly spiritually mature, to be truly emotionally mature means that we love others well. And fortunately, Jesus just gives us a clear picture of what love looks like because he just lived it and embodied it and then if that wasn't enough he taught on it regularly and so we're going to be in a passage that we were in just last year because it really draws out what love looks like Um, and it's found in Luke chapter 10 verses 25 and following so I'm going to read a section and we're going to kind of talk about it a little bit and, and, and finish out the passage. One day, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and and who's my neighbor exactly? So in this passage, right, the guy is wanting to know, what must I do to share in the resurrection of the righteous? And so what does the law say? Well, it's this, which is the Shema. As a good Jewish man, he would have been praying this twice a day, every morning, every night. You must love the Lord your God like it would come out of his mouth twice a day. He had this memorized, gang. Okay? And so what is the scope of that love? Like, is everyone a neighbor? Are some people neighbors and others not? Have I fulfilled this commandment? And so the guy's wanting to know the scope. Because among the Jews of the first century, uh, they were told, do not help sinners. Sinners get everything that's coming to them. It's their just dessert let them die, right? It's a thing. And so you don't help people that are getting their just dessert in life. And so you don't help sinners. You don't associate with them. They've got what they have coming to them. And so this guy who's asking this question is thinking, it's clear that his thinking is some people are neighbors and some people are not. Come on, we're Americans living in 2020, You have social media accounts. Isn't it true in America in 2020 that we, the American people, depending upon where you stand, have decided that some people are people and other people are not people, right? Uh, If you're on the far uh, left of things, right, them people in them flyover states, them racists, you know, they're not exactly people. Or if you're on this end of the continuum, all them libtards are ruining everything and they're not exactly people. And so we do this, right? We dehumanize groups of people. Um, so Jesus, being Jesus, tells a wonderful story, right? And that's the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, verses 30 and following. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man 
was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of the clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, hallelujah, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also paused and passed by the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man, and if the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you back the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yep, now go and do the same. That 17-mile stretch between Jerusalem and Jericho is bandit city, right? You don't typically travel that alone. It would be like me telling you, hey, why don't you go to Chicago next weekend and just walk around all by yourself and see what happens? You're going to get mugged. <laughs> this is going to happen, right? Okay, and so it's a dangerous dangerous stretch of road and the guy's beaten stripped robbed and left for dead and so three people pass by and two of them the priest and the levite are exactly the kind of people that you would think and you would expect would help the man and yet they don't and then there's the guy the samaritan guy which jews of the first century kind of you know you know how you can kind of stereotype groups of people their stereotype of samaritans is that they don't really honor god they're kind of selfish you know they can't see past the end of their nose and and so the last person you would expect to offer help is the samaritan and which one of them was a neighbor which one of them was a neighbor the samaritan right immortalized for all time and now we have this phrase good samaritan we even have good samaritan laws to protect do-gooders who help people beaten by the side of the road and the funny thing is the expert in the religious law at the end he can't even bring himself to say the samaritan did he said the one who showed mercy right he can't even can't can't even say it right go and do the same doing it living it out resonated with jesus Right In Luke 8, Jesus tells the crowd that his family, his real family, are the folks who hear and do what God says. Um, I've often wondered if the three people who passed by in Jesus' story, if in Jesus' mind, all three of them felt pity or if it was only the one person who felt pity. That's one of the questions I got for Jesus when I see him face to face. You know, like, when you told this story, what did you have in mind? But only one of them gets personally involved. Only one of them gets personally involved. Um, and so I want to flesh that out about what that means for loving well. Um, by the way, this, this text, this big idea is taken right out of emotionally healthy spirituality. This message today was so hard because Pete Scazzerzo in his chapter about becoming mature, he lists five traits of maturity. And I'm only touching on one today. Oh, five traits of emotional and spiritual maturity. All right? You can't read out of these, but I, I kind of want to give you a, a, a Airbus A320 view of maybe some benchmarks for what it means to be like 
an emotional infant or an emotional child, I'll put this out on social media later, an emotional adolescent or an emotional adult, right? So emotional infants, these are the kind of people that use others as objects to meet their needs. Uh, they're always looking for others to take care of them. Uh, they have difficulty entering into the world of, a, of other people, and they're driven by instant gratification. It's an infant. And then there's emotional children. Well, they're content as long as, as, long as they're getting what they want. If they're not getting what they want, right? They, un, they unravel quickly from stress, disappointments, and trials. Takes them out right out of the gate. They're easily hurt. They interpret disagreements as personal offenses. Oh, this person hurt me. They're, you know, just because they disagree. They'll complain, withdraw, manipulate, or take revenge when they don't get their own way. Emotional children. And then they're kind of emotional young people, emotional adolescents. They can be defensive. They're often threatened by criticism. They keep score of what they can give so that they can ask for something later in return. They deal with conflict poorly, often blaming or appeasing or going to a third party, pouting or just ignoring the issue altogether. They can often be preoccupied with themselves. They have truly uh, a difficult time listening to another person's pain or disappointments. And as you can see, as we go more toward adults, adults are capable of a lot more, aren't they? And infants aren't, very ca aren't capable of a whole lot. So emotional adults, what are some things about emotional adults? Well, uh, they're able to ask for what they want directly, clearly, honestly, and it's no harm, no foul. Uh, they recognize, manage, and take responsibility for their own thoughts and feelings. They can, when they're under stress, state their own beliefs without becoming adversarial. They give room for others to make mistakes. They can appreciate who they are, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, uh, they can appreciate others for who they are, the good, bad, and the ugly, and not for what they can get in return. Uh, they have the ability to accurately assess their own strengths, weaknesses, and limits, and they can actually verbalize those to other people and not feel bad about it. It's who I am. It's okay. Uh, they're in tune with their own emotional world and able to enter into the feelings, needs, and concerns of others without losing themselves. And they can maturely resolve conflict. Woo! big mark of an adult is they can maturely resolve conflict, which usually does not involve swords, okay? Just saying, <laughs> okay? Loving others well means that we don't treat them anymore as objects, okay? If I could get you to see something today, and you may have family members who are stuck in the use other people mode, and we should have coffee sometime, right? But like, uh, I just want you to see that loving others well means that you love them for who they are without having to change them and, and without expecting something in return. Um, you know people who, uh, I talk to people to get something off my chest. Um, I talk about people in charge as if they're not even human. I get frustrated when people don't conform to my plans or my expectations, right? And so those are all ways that we don't love others well. So in light of Jesus' story about this Samaritan, in light of what it means to love our neighbor, um, in light of God calling us to kind of take this journey, emotional journey from emotional and spiritual infancy toward emotional maturity, can you think of a time when you were seen in a negative light, when you were treated as inferior, or when you were passed over as just being invisible? 
Trust me, in Jesus' story about the man beaten by the side of the road, twice he felt invisible. How does it feel for you when you were invisible, when people passed you by? Is it possible, I got another question there, but I can't go forward. Um, The next question, who have you been taught not to see? Who have you been taught not to see? Um, uh, for a long time in, in my early days, uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't see how things were different for men and women. So I saw women in a different light when I was in my 20s and I became a janitor in an elementary school that was the only men in the building were the principal, the janitor. Everyone else was a woman. And I saw the dynamics of how that played out and it kind of gave me, and I saw people for the first time in a way I didn't see people before. So in what ways have you been taught not to see? And then last question, in what ways have you been treating others as objects? Are there people in your life where you've been expecting something from them and the relationship is all about what they can do for you or how they can help you? Um, So how can we take this home, right? Well, the first thing is, I'm just going to tell you, it's not enough to feel it in your heart. It's not enough to feel compassion in your heart. It's just not enough. It's not enough. And we may be given an opportunity in the days and months ahead to really live that out. Like, it's not enough to just feel compassion. Um, Philip Yancey says this uh, about Jesus. He says, The early Christians were renowned with the Roman Empire, within the Roman Empire, for their support of the poor and the suffering. The Christians, unlike their pagan neighbors, readily ransomed their friends from barbarian captors. And when the plagues hit, the Christians tended their sufferers, whereas the pagans abandoned the sick at the first symptoms. For the first few centuries, at least, the church took Christ's command to receive strangers, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and visit those in prison, literally. So it's not enough to just feel compassion. It's compassion lived out. And then the second thing is, and this is good news and also bad news. You and I, we don't get to decide who's human and who's not. We don't. God's already decided that. We don't get to decide who's human, who our neighbor is, and who's not human and who our neighbor is not. Um, And whenever we have a mindset where we're thinking about a person or uh, a group of people, and we think to ourselves, serves them right. They're getting, what that's, they're getting just what's coming to them. Uh, we don't reflect the kind of character of God that we see, a God who is gracious and merciful, right? Um, and so the temptation that we have is we're always gonna be more comfortable loving the people who are like us, Right? And it's harder to love people who aren't like you. And so I just want to suggest to you that in, when Jesus tells the story of the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, one of these things is not like the other. And it was the Samaritan, and yet he was the neighbor, okay? So um, uh, we have to uh, begin uh, loving people with concrete actions, Uh, Anthony DeMello really fleshes this out, and I want to read this quote. Um, Love springs from awareness. It's only inasmuch as you see someone as he or she really is here and now, and not as they are in your memory or in your desire or in your imagination or your projection, 
that you can truly love them. Otherwise, it's not the person that you love, but the idea that you have formed of this person or this person is the object of your desire as he or she is and not as he or she is in themselves. Therefore, the first act of love is to see this person or this object, this reality, as it truly is. And this involves the enormous discipline of dropping your desires, dropping your prejudices, your memories, your projections, your selective way of looking, a discipline so great that most people would rather plunge headlong into good actions and service than submit to the burning fire of this asceticism. So the first ingredient of love is to really see the other. I told this story last year, but I think that will, this will exemplify what Anthony is talking about. My freshman year of high school, my parents told me that we were gonna move. We were gonna leave the town I had grown up in and, and all the people I knew, and we were gonna move from Indiana to Nevada, far away. And I had so been looking forward to joining the band, right? Um, and I, again, I told this story last year, but I think it brings uh, Anthony's quote alive. My band director knew I was torn up by leaving. He had knew how excited I was. And the, the band had two different uniforms. Summer uniform, which was terrible. Big, long socks up to your knees. Tidy, tidy shorts. This is the early 80s. You know, uh, really slim t-shirts. Not, not good for a skinny, skinny, you know, ninth grader. Did not work well. And then we had the, the winter uniforms, which were the dress uniforms, which were just beautiful and wool. And so it was the first football game of the season. And typically the first two or three games, we wore the short uniforms. But Mr. Fisk saw me. And the way I know that he saw me is because he announced to the band that day, hey gang, it's cold enough, we're in winter gear. And when we were in the bathroom, he looked at me and he said, Mark, this is for you. It is not enough to feel compassion in your heart. It has to be lived out. 